You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Welcome to All Creatures Podcast. This is Chris, and today I'm joined with Mallory Lindsay. Hey, Mallory. Hi, how are you today? Oh, great. It's so great to have you. It's So we've had Rick, Stephanie, Jordan, and now Mallory. It's just been an amazing run of animal educators, conservation enthusiasts lately. We've been so blessed to have you. So thank you so much for agreeing to come on and taking the time to come on and, My- and speak to us. My, my pleasure. I love, especially that group of people that you just said, it's so diverse. So for an mm-hmm. audience to be able to listen to each one of those stories, um, you'll, they just, you'll learn so much and gain so many skills from that as well. No, it is. It's such a great group and diverse group. And it's just been, we've been giddy. We've been absolutely giddy uh, speaking to people like yourself. And now we have you. Can you just briefly talk about what is Ms. Mallory's Adventures? So Ms. Mallory's Adventures, it was basically a platform I started to get kids excited about wildlife and conservation. And for the past like three, four years, I've been so excited and really surprised about how much it's morphed into this more of a community-based learning atmosphere of people mainly who are wanting to become more engaged with conservation with wildlife education with outdoor exploration but really don't know how to make those first steps and because I was one of those people it's really been really really fun to kind of allow them to see my transition and then go back and see their transition with Miss Mallory Ventures as well no it, it it's been fun it's been fun to watch your videos and to kind of go to your website which we'll we'll provide links and stuff we'll get more into this in depth in the interview but yeah, it's it's fun, and and we're, we have some fun topics today. You know, <laughs> so oh my goodness! Talk- Anyone who lets me talk about some of the creatures we're going to talk about, I I am so thankful for. <laughs> <laughs> it's going to be amazing and different for our listeners. They're gonna they're gonna really enjoy this. So you know, with it, the the one thing that really caught my my attention was how you call yourself a curious conservationist. Can you just kind of explain what that means to you? For me, that is someone who's not only a continuous self-learner, but also one that is willing to kind of think outside the box when it comes to making an impact for our wildlife, our environment, um, on society in general. Right, right. And it's just, 
I just thought it was amazing. Like that's just such a great term and you need to trademark that because I actually did. I'm so glad that you said that because oh, my trademark did. is ending and I'm like, Oh, do I really want to spend the money to trademark it for another five years? So thank you for that. <laughs> do it, do it, do it. It's amazing. <laughs> I love it. I love it. And, and from some of these creatures we're going to talk about, obviously you're very curious. You're very curious. So if you could just kind of tell our listeners, you know, where you grew up, what's your background and I guess where you're currently living. I would love to. Um, so I grew up in San Diego, um, one of the most biodiverse county regions in the entire United States, right? But I was not an outdoorsy person, neither was my family. And so it was, I was such, so bummed that I never really kind of explored the area until I moved back. But I traveled the U.S. doing internships. I wanted to become a pachyderm veterinarian and unfortunately never went that route completely. Mm-hmm. But now I'm currently in Chattanooga, Tennessee. Tennessee. Oh, okay. Okay. San Diego. Where in San Diego? Um, that's where I grew up. So. Oh, really? <laughs> yes, oh my gosh. You yes. have so much in common already. Um, I, know, I, I grew up in El Cajon, East County area. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I was, uh, I'm spoiled. Don't worry. So. Oh gosh. Was, yeah. That's like saying you're from La Jolla. Golly. <laughs> Not that rich, but, but, but I did. <laughs> I loved your video in Torrey Pine State Beach. You know, go home. Uh, yeah, I'm going to be there in a couple of weeks again. I love San Diego. But anyways. That's a beautiful it, area. It, oh, it is. San Diego's gorgeous. It's just a lot of people. <laughs> so, Unfortunately. So, so now you're living in Tennessee. So different part of the country, different biome. It, it's... So moving from San Diego to Tennessee, I guess, where did your interest in conservation really begin? Because growing up in San Diego, you know, we went to the beach and we saw dolphins and maybe some seals, but. Right. But it's crazy to think that we do have the most, or San Diego has one of the most biodiverse regions because you have the oceans, you have the mountains, you have mm-hmm. the desert. When you really look, you can find those things. But I really didn't get into conservation. I was a late bloomer until my twenties. And that was when. I wanted to do something that was really kind of impactful. And when I thought of like impactful conservation, that meant going international, that meant going to the jungle, and that meant going, working with a critically endangered animal, which is really kind of such a narrow minded thought of conservation, but that's what I wanted to do. And so I'd never been out of country before. And I got a ticket. I found an organization that was willing to take me and I was very naive and I don't recommend people doing that. And I just flew over and I wanted to help them. And that was like my big jump into conservation. So where'd you go and what'd you work with? So I went to Belize. Mm -hmm. I didn't know the organization really. The mother organization that was over the project, it was for the critically endangered Hicketee, the Central American Mm -hmm. River Turtle. I drew him into MS Maui and I went there and I said, listen, I'm not a researcher. I'm not a veterinarian. I can take pictures, although I didn't tell them I didn't even own a camera. And I was like, if you just let me come, I, I will make it worth your while. And so I went down there and spent a week. It was eaten alive by leafcutter ants and mosquitoes <laughs> yeah. and got my first bot fly. And, oh God! Um, oh no! <laughs> it was yeah. It was my big jump into conservation, and I loved it. It was so great. Oh my goodness! Okay, I have a couple of questions about that. First of all, in your twenties, jumping into conservation, 
it's never too late to jump into conservation. And, and it's just something that we, we preach, you know, 50, 60, 70, 80 year olds can jump into conservation. So, you know, bravo for you for, for seeing the, the, the crisis that we're in. And then second, I, we get a lot of questions from, from younger people. How do you find these opportunities to, to go overseas and, and work in conservation? I reach out to anyone and everyone that I can Google. And I usually get mm-hmm. about a hundred either no's or complete silent treatments for every yes I do. But it, I would really say is to, to find, I call it my nature niche or niche, depending on where you're from. And, and that is find that specialty that you are absolutely good at that is kind of outside the typical conservation mindset, if you will, or skill set and be able to provide that to someone. So for instance, my skill set is storytelling. Uh, I work with a marketing company right now, mm-hmm. and then I also am a promotional marketer. So I know how to get people kind of excited and I know how to share messages. So being able to provide something like that to a conservation entity will really kind of up your game um, when you're able to give something more than you can take. Right, 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 right. And then I do want to say, you made such a great point. So San Diego, you're right, does have a diverse biome, the ocean, the mountains, the desert. And the point I was getting from listening to you talk about that, it doesn't matter where you live. You can live in LA, right? We know how big LA is and it's just one big city. But if you go look outside, go to the parks or just get on the edge of the city, there's tons of diversity in wildlife. So yeah, you know, great point. Great point about San Diego. Just growing up as a snotty teenager, you don't really look sometimes. Oh my gosh. I was terrified of anything that was bigger than my thumb. So I didn't look, I didn't want to look for anything. I didn't see my first leopard shark till I was 32 years old. So oh, it was, wow. yeah. Um, and it's, it's crazy. The sooner you can start, the better. Uh, intimidation is going to be a, a very natural feeling if you're older and trying to get into conservation because you think like, wow, I, you know, I don't have a degree. I don't, I don't have experience. But don't let that intimidation stop you, which is all about the curious conservationist to find those little ways that make you comfortable that can still affect positively affect wildlife and in our environment. Right. So I guess what, what was the tipping point for you? What really captured you with wildlife? Like you said, okay, like you said, in your twenties, you're like, I'm going to get involved. What was it that pushed you there? Uh, I would say first was. I wanted to become, as I mentioned, a pachyderm vet, but I obviously was afraid of wildlife. So I was like, you know what? I'm going to, I'm going to learn about wildlife. I'm going to become a wildlife rehabilitator, which was probably not a good idea, but I did anyways. And I ended up realizing that every negative thing I thought about wildlife from opossums being these nasty creatures to squirrels wanting to run and attack my face, like in Christmas vacation or, you know, vultures that were going to eat our farms chickens you know all those things were were wrong and they were wrong not only were they wrong but they were just they all those fallacies were based on hearsay or media you know no real clear facts and when I realized that that was my big epiphany and I was like oh my gosh what else am I wrong about and then when that's how I kind of got into the creepy crawly thing but Mm -hmm. I just became like this unquenchable thirst of knowledge and and that's when I was like, I got other people got to know this. Other people got to know my secrets. 
No, it's true. It's true. And it, it's once you start learning more about these animals and behavior and things like that, first of all, the fear goes away, but also the, the admiration and, and just like the love for them grows. Like it just, it seems like every species we cover each week, I fall in love with them. I'm like, okay, you're new, my, you're my new favorite you, outside. Of oh my gosh. Yeah. I can't wait to talk to you about leeches. <laughs> okay. We're getting there. We're getting there. We're getting there. <laughs> you're going to fall in love. <laughs> Yeah. So one of the things you talk about is you're really getting involved in these grassroots conservation projects. Can you kind of talk, I guess, what is a grassroots conservation project and and how did you get involved with that? For me, a grassroots conservation is kind of more like the boots on the ground. So the smaller entities that when you give them money, it really like goes direct. Maybe they can't do these like massive global projects. But they're really making an impact with their either local species or the local community. And I, I would just say that's to me, that's like the real boots on the ground kind of conservation work. And the reason why I like it so much is because I think there's I'm, I might get in trouble for this, but there's not as much politics, if you will. Mm-hmm. Um, as far as people are open to suggestions, for the most part, they're very grateful for whatever they can get. And they're so resourceful that. I just, I just find it so admirable and so soul fulfilling that you see these people that are so, so passionate that just, they just give their life for these animals. And to be able to witness that, it's kind of like my, my kindling. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, it's, I mean, it's interesting. There are a lot of smaller organizations that people don't know about. So, you know, that's like one thing Angie does each week is, is we always talk about an organization and, and, you know, you have the big ones, like you said, some politics and they're a global reach. And then you have the smaller ones that are focused, like just say on sloths or like you said, just leeches, you know, is there, is there an organization that's, that's working on leeches? There's an organization that's trying to utilize leeches and maggots in medicine to overcome antibiotic resistant bacteria. Okay. Okay. We'll get there. We'll get there. We're going to talk about leeches. (laughs) You do. You do. You do. Well, that's really cool. And it's, I think we like to to shine the light more on those organizations that the smaller ones that don't get the big funding, but they're out there doing tremendous work for, for species or wildlife or biomes. So that's really great. Could I do a shout out to one that I work with? Yeah, absolutely. Please, please. Oh my goodness. So if anyone loves sea turtles and you want to work with researchers, and I'm talking like hands-on volunteer work with loggerhead sea turtles. Look up the Coretta Research Project. They're based out of Georgia. They seriously have like two full-time staff. They're one of the longest-running sea turtle conservation research entities in the U.S. And some of the most passionate people you'll ever be able to volunteer with. Awesome. And we'll put it – I don't know if they have a website or something we could put you. up for <laughs> – yeah, yeah, we'll definitely uh, get that from you and put that on our show notes for this interview. But yeah, that's great. It's we love these people and what they're doing. It, it, it's amazing. All right, so let's talk creepy crawlies. <laughs> this, oh, this. I thought you'd never ask. <laughs> How did you go from being scared or, or just intimidated by some of these animals to now you embrace? And I saw you letting a leech suck your blood. Yeah. How did how did you make that step? How did you make that step? Uh, it was kind of so it's been very gradual, right? So I was afraid of everything, and then once I kind of overcame one fear, I was like, "Whoa, that's completely 
like life changing. You feel almost like a release, if you will, because you have like all those endorphins and you're like super freaked out. And then as soon as it, you're always, what's the right word? Um, it's kind of like Will Smith said it. The worst part of skydiving is right before you jump. Mm-hmm, you're mm-hmm. So you're so anticipating all these bad things are going to happen. And then when it happens, you're like, oh, that was not bad at all. And I guess I kind of became addicted to that. So first it was snakes and then it was spiders and then it was uh, scorpions and leeches and, and maggots. And I'm now finally getting over my fear of sharks. Yes, I know. I know. I know. Six people a year are killed by sharks. And we say this stat all the time around the world. And then 20 something people are killed by cows in the U S each year. So, and yet we have this fear of sharks. Thank you, Jaws. Anyways. I know. (laughs) And and that's like such a, like a huge, that shows you so much about how our fears are so based on media and cultural differences Mm -hmm. and that kind of stuff. And for me, it's not because I went shark diving and I realized it was, it wasn't the animal itself. It's that I could potentially do something unintentionally that would provoke an action I don't want. That that's what I'm afraid of is myself doing something stupid. Right, 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 right. You just got to respect wildlife always, always. So, okay, let's talk leeches. I guess <laughs> you want to talk leeches. I'm you said excitement right now. All right. So you you said in your videos you're like you're strange and weird, and I don't think it's. Weird, maybe a little strange that you love leeches. So what is so great about leeches? So for me, the more I learn about leeches, and I try to learn something new about every week or so, is that they have been a part of basically human medical history since the beginning of time. And not only that, but we have had such a dependency on leeches medically, um, environmentally, economically, like how would you know that we've made literally hundreds of millions of dollars off of leeches? Not only that, um, but in neuroscience and conservation, so we're so dependent, yet we're the ones that almost completely eradicated them. And so you're like, whoa, is this animal we think is a parasite when really humans are more parasitic to them? I just think that's absolutely fascinating. And that we can think think something is so loathsome and yet be so oblivious about how important they are to our species. I mean, it's, it's so crazy how we talk about these food webs and each species, you know, plays a critical role, you know, from the smallest to the largest. And so you're right. Each one does. So you said leeches in medicine. So what are they? I mean, this is, this is ancient techniques, right? I mean, this is really old. I'm so glad you mentioned that. Um, yeah. So yes, bloodletting is um, very ancient, obviously not beneficial, really. But they are actually now um, are medical devices. They are USDA certified medical devices, and they're used in microsurgery. So surgeons aren't able to reestablish very small vessels, capillaries, when, say, you chop off an ear or maybe the dog bites your lip off, or maybe you chop your finger off because you're not paying attention. They can sew that digit back on and that skin, but they can't reestablish that blood flow. So what leeches Mm -hmm. do is they have enzymes in their saliva, and when they they bite down, they're able to um, secrete uh, an enzyme that is anticoagulant, so it doesn't allow the blood to clot. And that 
can pull the blood back through those broken capillaries and bring oxygenated blood back into that tissue to prevent it from dying. How That's amazing crazy. is that? Oh my I God. Know. I yeah, is that what is that what they're doing with maggots too? Like maggot therapy? Or no, no, that's different, right? It is different. And I gosh, you just say all the right <laughs> ask the right questions. Um so maggot therapy is different in the sense that many people don't realize that maggots secrete um enzymes that break down necrotic tissue but will leave living tissue. And so what they do is they put these <laughs> it's like a bag of maggot in um, mm-hmm. In these wounds, a lot of times they're like very chronic um, Mercer type stuff. And the maggots will eat all the dead tissue. They'll live, they'll <laughs> leave the living tissue. And then also like them crawling kind of stimulates um, the, the blood and the tissue to regenerate. And then they also will excrete an antimicrobial, antibacterial secretion that um, will keep like this plaque-like film from developing mm-hmm. over the wound as well. So they keep the that kind of environment very, very clean, and it just allows it to, to regenerate so much faster. Okay. Where did you start learning all this? <laughs> oh, my goodness. Um, so <laughs> I fell upon uh, – so when I was in Asia – I was talking to one of our guys and we we're talking about medicine and I'm always interested in like in ethnobotany and that kind of stuff and pharmaceutical botany. And he's like, Oh, I use leeches. And I was like, come again. Like mm-hmm. you do that in survivor. You don't do that. Yeah, on, yeah. Intentionally. And he's like, no. And so I started looking it up in the States and I was like, Holy smokes. Like these things are used in hospitals. And I just, um, I just, went crazy. So there's a foundation called Better, B-T-E-R, Biotherapy, um, Education and Research. And so I actually am working with them to develop a public awareness campaign to get more people excited about not using so many drugs and trying to use more of these more holistic but very effective remedies. Right, right, right. I mean, it's like... The, the medical field today, you know, we so advanced, but yet we should always look back at things that have worked for thousands of years, right? There's certain herbs and things like that. Holistic. Yeah. 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 And research based, right? So you always want to make sure that it's, it's not just hearsay. There's actually mm-hmm. research that backs all these wonderful things. Absolutely. Always important. Always important. So you've been bitten by a leech, right? Um, intentionally and unintentionally. Yes. So what's it like to all the listeners that have not been bitten by leeches, including me? What is that like? What does it feel like? I mean, do you feel it? So I was, when I went to Asia, that was like the one thing I was mortified about. I was like, oh my gosh, what if I get bit by a leech? What if I, you know, lose all my blood? And one, you don't feel it. Um, two, you don't really notice they're there until like you go to pull off your sock and you're like, it's red. Oh my gosh, there's blood everywhere. So it's not oh, that no. bad. And what's really kind of great about a leech, like I'd rather be bit by a leech to a mosquito a thousand times over. Uh, they don't really have like those crazy, nasty diseases. They're not vectors like mm-hmm. a mosquito mm-hmm. is. So if you are bit, you don't have to worry about it. Just never, ever, ever burn a leech off or pinch and pull a leech off or do anything that would like aggravate it. 
That's so how are you supposed to get, how do you get them off? You can um, use a credit card, like scrape it off. Or what okay. I typically do is get my thumbnail and just pop the sucker. So there's two suckers. One has jaws and mm-hmm. one's like an anchoring sucker. And you just want to pop the jaw sucker off. <laughs> I just hope I never have to do that. I'm sorry. Worry, <laughs> Unless it's for medical reasons. You'll never, like if you get a leech on you, you'll probably never notice it. They really, you can't feel it. Um, the only time, if you ever, so I read a lot of like historical entomology kind of stuff. And they said the only time they realized it was one, they were drinking the water and a leech got, they ingested a leech and it lodged in their throat and then it engorged and oh, it choked them. Yeah. That's my worry. Oh God. And then oh, the other God. one was they just like, they were just covering them and they see it. Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so for, medical, for medical reasons. Sure. Yeah. Intentionally. Yes. But um, in the jungle, yeah, you won't even notice them. In fact, most people will walk around in shorts just so they can see the leech start getting on them. And you can, like, just wipe them off before they even attach. Right, 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 right. And, I mean, I've had plenty of ticks on me. I just, uh, ugh. Yeah, me and ticks don't don't get along. Nope. No, no. Okay, so, oh, there's one you don't like. Oh, yeah, yeah, we found one. Yeah, (laughs) one gave me the alpha-gal allergy, so I'm kind of a, a little against ticks. Yeah, me too. Me too. Me too. Um, they're just, ugh. Yeah, and they, and they carry a lot of nasty stuff too. So, you know, is there any creature out there that you, besides ticks, I guess, is one, mm-hmm. and you said sharks, but are there other animals that you just are like, <gasps> because you like everything, right? I mean, it seems like you like everything. I try to, but you know, I still haven't found a love for mosquitoes yet as much as I try. I just, I know <laughs> things eat them, but I've gotten bot flies. I've gotten sick and I just, you know, I know people are afraid of sharks, yet mosquitoes are probably the deadliest animal on the planet. Yeah, so. they are. They are. They kill more people than anything. Ugh. Yeah. Besides so human. We can no, get- no, more than human. Yeah. Yeah, more than human. <sighs> we could probably get yeah. rid of those, and I'd be okay with that. <laughs> yeah, me too. They, lo- they love me. They love me. Uh, so is there any animal that you're, like, dying to work with or go cover? Yeah. Yes. So if I had a million dollars, I would literally go on tour filming the coolest, creepiest, craziest animals possible. The longfin eel from New Zealand. Have you ever heard about that? Yeah, I actually lived in New Zealand for about eight months. So yeah, definitely. (gasps) Yeah. Yeah, I've seen plenty. I've saw plenty of eels. Yes. Yes. My kids loved it. Loved it. And they're big, right? Yeah. Oh, they're crazy too. I mean, you know, we get a little meat and go drop it and they just come everywhere yeah they're really cool i think they're fantastic and the fact that they can live to be over 80 years old they only breed once in their life they have to go back to the ocean in order to spawn yet scientists Mm -hmm. don't really know exactly where they spawn i just think that it's one of little nature's mysteries i would love to go film them i'd love Mm -hmm. to film the giant amazonian leech and i would love to go film uh hagfish which Mm -hmm. are pretty amazing little aquatic critters and I would love to go and do um, anything in Sumatra, I think would be pretty incredible. Oh, orangutans. <laughs> see yeah. orangutans in Sumatra. That's probably one of the very few mammals I really love. Okay. Can we back up a little bit? You said in Brazil, this giant leech? Amazonian leech. Yes. So they How big is that sucker? Yeah. About um, 17 inches. 17 to no. 20 inches? No way. Yeah. About the no size way. of your forearm. No. 
So Don't that one you would definitely feel if it bit you. So oh, most creatures have like two to three jaws that kind of like razor your skin. I know it sounds like really terrible, oh but gosh. you don't feel it. Now mm-hmm. the this leech has like this proboscis that will like stab you and suck your blood. Oh. I'd rather oh not god. do that. Oh my god! So where are the okay in Amazon? Obviously South America. Yes. What what the heck would they bite? What's I mean? There's nothing that oh, huge down there anymore. Yeah, but I mean, they have like monkeys and you can, I mean, I'm sure the bigger ones have a harder time, but you guys think mm-hmm. most leeches don't have to eat very often. Um, mm-hmm. They're pretty good at um, utilizing their resources for quite a long time. But what's interesting about that species is they thought it went extinct and they just, they just re- rediscovered it. But um, they actually found that there's some enzymes, I don't know if it's in their saliva or if it's mm-hmm. in their body cavity, that could be a possibility of stopping lung tumors. Oh my goodness. Oh my goodness. But I'm, I'm still st- never know. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, but I'm still stuck <laughs> on how big it is, but, but let's, let's talk about what it can yeah, do from science. <laughs> 17 inches. My God, that thing's huge. I know. Can you imagine that thing crawling oh. up your leg? I think it has to get you when you're sleeping. Like you can't, Oh. you got to sleep in like a vacuum pack bag. I've got to look into that one. Like, what in the heck would it feed on? Like, those, you know, river dolphins? I don't know. Yeah, I don't know what the heck it could eat on. No, I guess those oh big fish, like the arowanas, or I'm not sure, but. Yeah, yeah, it could be something like that. You're right, right? It could do, you know, something bigger, but oh my goodness, that's crazy. That's crazy. I would love to oh. see one. Um, UC Berkeley has a breeding colony that I've been trying to get mm-hmm. a hold of. Like, you know, how we're talking about reaching out to people, you'll get a lot of no's and mm-hmm. I get a lot of no's from scientists and I want to look at their creepy crawly collections. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I don't know. They should be a more open, really. <laughs> I know, Science communication is like a big leech. problem. And, <laughs> <laughs> especially, you know, you're going to promote it and what they're doing. It's like, come on, take, take, take a half an hour and promote my lab, please. Um, anyways, so you said, what's with hagfish? Why are you so excited about hagfish? So hagfish is this incredibly primitive vertebrate, right? It's the only one that has kind of like a skull, but really like a very primitive nauticord. So not not really any kind of bony backbone whatsoever. But they secrete a slime that they use to basically clog the gills of anything that tries to eat it. But what's really neat is that you think of slime like you would think of like a mucus, right? Well, this is mm-hmm. actually more like spider silk. So, like, if Slimer and Spider-Man had a baby, they would make a hagfish kind of thing. <laughs> like, okay. I, I love it. So, these, um, these like, threads are in these tiny little capsules that are inside the hagfish. And, and when the hagfish releases them, as soon as they hit water, they expand, like, some crazy volume amount. And I'm talking, like, mm-hmm. maybe 500%, if not more. But... um I got a t- I got really excited about them because I saw a story on the news how these this bucket of hagfish inside a truck was overturned and because it was raining the hagfish like slimed all the cars in the traffic <laughs> oh and I was like oh my gosh I got another creature and so I touched my first hagfish last year and I'm completely in love mm-hmm. with them and um, research is really doing some incredible things about the slime I can't talk much about it but. One thing is that Navy is using it to use for like defense, submarine defense, and also mm-hmm. with um, some really cool like bio biofabrics, which is really exciting to mm-hmm. to maybe replace petroleum based fabrics. 
See, it's all these animals. We can learn so much from them, not just exploit them, you know, because some of that is human exploitation, but preserve them, you know, preserve them so we can learn some of this cool stuff, you know, why they do it and how the heck this giant leech that now I'm going to have nightmares about (laughs) can survive. (laughs) It's like. Yeah. And like, uh, or like, for instance, another really cool thing about leech, and I might insert these facts wherever I can is. When uh, the Nobel pr- uh, Prize was given for learning about neurotransmitters, it was actually the leech that w- they were able to do their research on. So if it really wasn't for the leech, or maybe they could have found something else, but the leech has such a very cool nervous system that it can help us learn more about the human nervous system. I was like, you know, mm-hmm. these animals that we just kind of outcast, and this is all around nature that we just kind of put to the side, like, oh, it doesn't matter if they are gone, are really it's so instrumental in research in the future or, you know, even in the past. No, and it's, it's uh, you know, some of, the, some of the stuff that, you know, we always talk about why care about a species or what not only what they do for the biome or the environment, but, you know, we always come back to, you know, what have we learned from them and what can we learn from them? So yeah, it's, it's, I think it's, it's some of these creepy crawly things, you know, we're, we're, we are learning a lot about. So what are some other cool animals that you've worked with that people would be like, what? Uh, oh, goodness. Um, well, mainly it's gonna, so I do a lot of stuff too with edible insects, which really isn't, I'm not working with the animal, but we're trying to learn a very sustainable protein. And so the fact mm-hmm. that Americans are really kind of, ta- it's very taboo in American culture, even though it's, you know, very prevalent everywhere else in the world, really. Uh, that's kind of something where people are like, you eat bugs? And I'm like, yeah, they're so good. And another kind of weird creature is something that's weird, I think it's really cute, is the burrowing owls. So mm-hmm. if um, so, those are really kind of those anti-stereotypical creatures. You know, they're, they're more diurnal. They like to collect dung and decorate the outside of their burrow with it. Uh, they're just kind of weird and, and wonderful little pint-sized raptors. But uh, I'm working with San Diego Zoo Global on doing an awareness program. Their, their populations in San Diego and East County, Southern California, are declining significantly. And we're trying to ask citizen scientists, which are average Joes like myself, to really help with doing stuff like that by going to a citizen science portal where they can look at pictures and videos and help scientists um, gather data. Yeah, we're gonna have to. We're gonna definitely to put this put this on the uh, the show notes. I so we had Rick. You know, obviously, you know, we had Rick on a few weeks ago. You know, watching the zoo program, San Diego. Like, I was surprised with their burrowing owls because we covered them I don't know, over a year ago. And and I just the Western population, I I just wasn't familiar with until watching their their program with that, right? I mean, they're, they're re-releasing, they're breeding, re-releasing, doing all sorts of stuff with them. Yeah, it's fantastic. And it, I, you know, being in a San Diego native, I never really saw them and I had no idea mm-hmm. how dependent they were on the ground squirrel, right? So it goes to show you mm-hmm. again, how something that we might think is a nuisance is maybe so important to something that we think is a different species that we think is more important. So um, yeah, it's, it's really neat yeah. and it's amazing how people can become involved with that and do so much just from the comforts of their own home. 
and it's free, which is even better. Right. <laughs> no, I know citizen science is, uh, it's one of my passions. I love it. I love it. I love it. So uh, what, I guess you, you talk, talk about how you're a wildlife myth buster and you've busted some myths on here. Okay. So leeches yes. besides this giant leech. <laughs> Okay. 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 Um, I want to go to the Amazon. Maybe I'll just fly over it a few times. Um, <laughs> what, what are some of the other myths that you've busted? Um, so some of my favorite myths are actually the myths of the wildlife that's in our backyard, because that's what kind of prevented me from be like exploring my own backyard as a kid, because I was always so afraid of it. So even like, for instance, opossums even though they look really scary obviously they're very beneficial with eating ticks but they they're it's very 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 unlikely for them to carry rabies so even though they're frothing and they you know emit very foul odors when they're scared you don't have to worry about rabies which is really great um there's also the frog mm-hmm. thing where you don't you don't have to worry about getting warts from a frog that's that's not going to happen or Gosh, there's just so many snakes aren't going to run and chase you, even though you think they are. Mm-hmm. Really, it's probably because you're standing in front of their burrow and they that's where their safety zone is. So I think the the backyard right. mythbusters are my favorite. No. It, and so uh, possums are amazing, by the way. I did some wildlife rehab in the, back in the day. And I, oh, when they were babies, they were the cutest things ever. And then you release them and you just watch them go and you're like, good luck. You know, <laughs> um, Don't go near the highway. So I know, I know. Well, yeah, I was in the backwoods of South Carolina. So hopefully their genetics went on because they're probably long gone. But you know, you said busting these myths. So, so you do a lot of outreach, right? So you go and talk to kids or not just your videos, your yeah. social media, but you also go and do events, right? Absolutely. I love doing, I go, um, I take people or kids from boys and girls club or, um, just nature hikes, any kind of youth groups that will let me lead hikes that we try, I try to go. And I, sometimes I don't know exactly all about their wildlife, but at least I can point out some of the, the common stuff and, Lots of school presentations, lots of virtual classrooms, and I think that's just the most important thing is developing that emotional connection and being a role model for children who grew up maybe like myself who didn't have a role model that was very confident in nature with wildlife. I think that is so important, especially if you're either in science or if you're in wildlife definitely make an effort to do some kind of that public interaction. So important. It is. It is. And to go back to the edible insects, do you like at some of these presentations, do you bring some like, was it chocolate covered crickets? Is that <laughs> some of the things that you can eat? Yeah. I mean, there's like, what are some of your so favorites? Yeah. Okay. So I, I always start off Pete. I always start, off with cricket powder. So you can put cricket powder in essentially any kind of baked good. You don't taste it. Um, I bring like protein powder, uh, protein bars that are cricket powder based. I will also try wax worms are um, very sweet. So you could fry those up. Uh, mealworms are also kind of sweet and you can put those in like fried rice. But usually it's, it's the cricket powder. And if they want to be adventurous, then I'll bring some candied crickets or something like that for them to try. Well, it, it was funny because uh, you talk about, you know, protein and, and we're, we're talking about trying to eat less meat, 
you know, mm-hmm. because especially beef, beef cattle and, and the problems with the environment there. So cricket powder is very high in protein, right? High in protein, high in folic acid, high in iron, high in B12. I mean, it's so great. And it takes seriously like a fraction of the resources as say like cattle does, you know, less water, obviously less food. There's not as much waste. In fact, I think you can use like 98%, if not 100% of insects when you grind them up and, and utilize them for food, whereas you use just a small percentage when you have beef. It's just overall, it's so great. So if we can get over that, that cultural taboo, mm-hmm. that insects are gross, and most people don't even know, they probably eat about half a pound of insects unknowingly from their processed gonna, foods. You know? I was going to ask that. So, yeah. <laughs> or so accidentally swallow. I, right? Yeah. So if you're like, oh, I'd never eat a cricket. Yeah, you probably already have plus about a half a cockroach. So <laughs> it's, you know, once you get over that, I think it's great. And most people and these companies are like being incredibly creative with mm-hmm. the way that they're utilizing insects. And plus for you know, we use so much like fish meal and that kind of stuff in our agriculture based feed that um, being able to utilize insect protein instead would not only be more economical, but also, you know, better, better for the environment as well. So if somebody's looking to make some money, start a cricket farm, right? Yeah, I mean, you can use, use bio waste, right? You go to your local mm-hmm. food market and if something's starting to rot or whatever, then you can feed it to your insects and there you go. Grind them up. <laughs> sure there's some FDA you, you regulations. You protein. <laughs> <laughs> but no, I mean, it's, it's, I think it's, this is, okay, this is a twist in the interview because I, you know, I didn't expect to go here, but you know, just today I was talking to a friend about soy protein and the problems with it and, and Angie's PhD, you know, we talked about in the rhino episode we did a few weeks ago, looking at phytoestrogens and soy is high in phytoestrogens. So soy protein, something I'm, uh, me personally, I'm a little wary of too much of it because it's too much estrogen in the diet, especially for young children, you know, female or male. So cricket powder, your kids would never know, you know, if you stuck it in that smoothie (laughs) instead of soy. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, you even think like you're using you organic material to feed it. There's no mm-hmm. additives. There's no preservatives. There's no, there's nothing except for it's all natural. And I think it's just so, it's something we're really missing out on. And if we can start replacing some of that bulk protein in, in our processed foods with mm-hmm. maybe mm-hmm. edible insects, I don't know. If anyone's interested, um, the organization I'm working with is called NACIA, N-A-C-I-A. And it's North American Coalition for Insect Agriculture. Okay. Never so if anyone's interested to learn more, I yeah. you'll be blown away with some of the really cool facts about nutrition and environmental impact and that kind of stuff. Yeah. And I mean, I'm sure there's some strict guidelines on how to raise them and stuff like that. Like don't go out and just start picking crickets up off the ground and eating them. I, I don't know. I just don't know if they'd oh be my goodness. No, anything. no, no. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> All this stuff <laughs> is very like, everything is farmed. It's very clean. Right. Right. Like, yeah. It's much cleaner than probably your, your average dairy or, or beef farm. Right. Yeah. And I mean, it's like, you know, I'm just saying like, I read that some teenager ate a snail and the snail was carrying some a microplasmosis or something oh my crazy. That's- yeah, you don't do that. Like escargot that people eat is farm-raised 
very handled very carefully. So just don't pick insects off the ground and eat them. <laughs> but even though you might, yeah, you might I, already. Yeah. I mean, I, I've gone camping and, and foraged, you know, for my meal, mm-hmm. but yeah, you always cook do, it. Yeah. Never. Yeah. Never, yeah. never eat raw things. It's, it's sex. <laughs> yeah. right. Don't eat your insects raw. Yeah. So what's some of your favorite species besides some of these creepy crawlies? I guess elephants. Uh, yeah, so I've always had a fondness for pachyderms. Mm-hmm. Uh, also, turtles and tortoises. That's kind of where mm-hmm. I I cut my teeth when it comes to conservation. So I've always had a really fondness for them. And anything that's kind of just taboo, if you will. Naked mole rats, oh my goodness. Oh, I, yeah. <laughs> I would go crazy over some naked mole rats any day. You like the it's ugly just, ones. Like a, <laughs> I, so I do. Cute. Like, I was so misunderstood as a child and growing up that I just have this like kind of innate connection with them that I just I understand you so much. <laughs> they're and amazing. Plus, you know, I mean, they have. Oh, cool. Yeah. Did you, have you guys have done a podcast on them? Yeah, way back, way back when, like That's oh, a year and a half ago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They were. Some of and their... then that one, po- yeah, one pocket of Africa, and just oh, yeah. They're yeah, amazing. and then being like you social like bees and having mm-hmm. those pain um inhibiting receptors and that right? kind of stuff is just so fascinating. Yeah, they 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 uh, they're they're incredible. That's a fun uh podcast. Thanks for plugging it for us. We'll yeah, absolutely. Go again. check it out cuz you're going to fall in love with naked mole rats even yeah, naked, like I do. They're, they're really cool. So you so some of the places you you traveled, you said Belize and Asia, where else have you been? Um, those are about the two that I stick with. Usually whenever I go somewhere to work with a nonprofit or any kind of entity, I try to go back consistently. And so I haven't been able to really travel outside of there. But if anybody wants to maybe invite me to their research and you want someone to tell your story, please contact me. Because I'm always, if I go somewhere, I like to have a job, not a paying job, but I just like to have a mission and a purpose. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. always looking for, for fun scientists that have a story, but just Asia and Central America so far. So switching gears a little bit, because crickets aren't endangered, so that I know of. There might be some species. It, and, and that's not to say there aren't insects that aren't endangered or extinct, because there's probably a ton that we don't know about that are already extinct. Um, so any yeah. entomologists out there, don't come after me. I'm sorry. I just, it's <laughs> an area I'm not familiar with. But from your experience, why is conservation so important today? For me, conservation, I conservation is, I guess it's just stewardship, right? So it's it's just the protecting that that stuff that that really makes the world go around, and we still know so little about it. That conservation is is basically just that protection and being able to take care of something that provides for you, whether you know it or not. And I think that's why it's so important to me is I, I treasure the things that take care of me, uh, people, animals, whatever. And, and so that's why I believe conservation is so important. Right. And so you, you've worked with some really endangered species. Can we talk about those? You said one of the, the turtles down in Belize? Yeah. So the Central American river turtle, the Hicate is, um, it's been in the Belizean culinary culture, especially. Um, for a very mm-hmm. long time. And they actually eat the animal, kind of like we eat turkey on Thanksgiving. Um, Hickety is typically served during Easter. 
And unfortunately, um, like most turtles, um, they mature very slowly. Uh, they don't have very many young, um, opposed to how much is overcollected. And there's really little known about them. Uh, they just started breeding them again a couple of years ago at this research center where they're able to really start generating some really good offspring numbers. But um, it's just, it's sad that these people unknowingly were eating this animal to extinction. Right, right. And that's in Belize because I know, so Costa Rica is one that's been pretty green, right? Like they've, they've been trying to, to change and they're trying to track ecotourists. Is Belize, did you see Belize trying to do that? Uh, yeah, I mean, as far as Belize, I, I, I haven't looked into it completely, mm-hmm. but they protect a lot of their forests, which is amazing. And they're bringing in more tourist areas, uh, tourist groups to do stuff with, like the harpy eagle and, and a lot of the other wildlife in the different reserves. I haven't been back in a few years, but last time I went, it was still kind of hard to get to a lot of those wild areas, which I think is great. But um, they're really starting to focus more on teaching communities. And I think that's really important to, instead of kind of non-natives going in and trying to fix everything, really bringing up those communities and, and showing them how important their wildlife is and and allowing them to be, quote unquote, like the, the saviors of their wildlife mm-hmm. is, is so important to in conservation as well. That is incredible message. Yes. Yeah, you know, absolutely. The locals, it can't be, you know, us from the United States saying, Oh, do this. And they can turn around and say, Oh, what about your wolves or something like that? You know? <laughs> no, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> definitely not good at that. <laughs> no, no. So you're right though. It, it, the locals have to buy in. And I know the research, like, especially like coming out of Nepal, one of the great places to see where this is in action and working it was snow leopards, their elephants, the tigers, they have local buy-in and now those species are recovering. So that's a great point. Great point. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And unfortunately too, I don't, and this, the science, scientific community, um, I'm, I do a little bit more like social or sorry, citizen science. And, um, I go back and forth, but I know with the public point of view and some of the, the conservationists that I've worked with, they're so, um, they love being, you know, promoting their work and, and being featured on the news and, and the likes and the follows and, and really kind of having that big platform to share their message on. And sometimes though, I don't think that, that, that should be the most important thing, having the biggest platform. It's, it's really, you know, working inside and not always being the face and not always, uh, what's the right word? Sorry. I'm kind of rambling on this one. But basically, um, the message is that um, many conservationists right now, especially with social media, want to be the face of big projects. And mm-hmm. and really, it, it should never be one person. It should be the community and it should be groups yeah. of people working together. Yeah. Yeah. Get the ego out of it. You know, it's, it's, it's about the animals. It's about the environment and you're right, the locals. And, you (laughs) know, before we go and tell someone else how to take care of their backyard, we need to take care of our own. And absolutely. Backyard exploration is so important. Yeah. Yeah. So, okay. So you go, you go to these schools, you talk to these kids, do you bring them maggots and leeches or some of these creepy crawly things? 
sometimes. So I have like hissing cockroaches and some of the smaller things because I travel so much and go state to state. Sometimes I can't. Instead, what I ask the teachers to do sometimes is create a little wildlife habitat. Um, So if it's in a playground, you know, lay some boards down, maybe they can leave some water out. And so when I show up, we go and look at those habitats that we just created to see what kind of creatures we can find in their backyard. So instead of me bringing creatures, I try to take everyone out and go find creatures in in whatever habitat that we can find. Right. Can you talk about some of the cool stuff you found? Oh, um, sure. So I was in, it wasn't Phoenix, Arizona. I want to say it's like Chandler, a smaller school. But mm-hmm. they're like, gosh, it's so boring. We live in a desert. We can't find anything. <laughs> and I was like, okay, well, let's start talking about adaptations and that kind of stuff. And mm-hmm. and so we created, um, the teachers created some boards and we created a shady spot with some water. And we were able to go and find a frog. And we were able to find um, some fence lizards and that kind of stuff. And being able to, I think the children just didn't have the right tools. And that's mm-hmm. what we sometimes forget. We always teach them about what animals to look for, but we don't really teach them how to look for them. Mm-hmm. And I, and that's what we, I was really trying to, to push. But um, as far no, as other great. cool things, um, salamanders um, in Tennessee, we found some really cool things. A group found a hellbender. Unfortunately, I wasn't with mm-hmm. that group. But um, yeah, it's just really cool things when you when you can finally start flipping things over and and looking inside. We found a dead possum. I think the kids were most excited about that one. <laughs> all the you, you, all the bugs that were inside the dead possum. Oh god! Oh, did you check the? Oh, well, it's too late. That usually if there's a dead possum on the road, you can check the the pocket if it's a female and see if there's any babies. That's usually how we got mine. But um, yeah, no, it's it's that's so cool. Look in your own backyards. There's a, a wealth of wildlife. And, you know, growing up in California, I go out and the crows amaze me. I just listen to them. I watch them. I watch them fly. And I'm just like, wow. You know, I never appreciated you as a kid. But now I do, you know, as, as I do this yeah. and get more excited about it. So a few more questions. It, so from your perspective, because this is, it, it's interesting being a, you know, curious conservationist, somebody that's doing grassroots work. How do we con- convince others fighting for endangered species is worth it? Because, you know, the naysayers say, oh, just let them go extinct. It's too late. It's not worth the money. How do we convince those people that it is worth the money and time? So I try to, I don't like to preach as far as I shouldn't say preach or lecture. I don't like to like talk to big groups of people. I typically, when I want to convey a message of conservation to a group that may not necessarily agree with some of my um, outlooks, is I try to have real, genuine conversations. And I always try to listen to them before I speak. Uh, and I actually listen, not just wait for m- my turn to talk, and really understand what they're talking about, and then find messages of conservation and real life um, case studies and scenarios that align with whatever they're talking about. And by developing those connections, um, I've been able to alter perspectives on why things you should set aside tracts of land when, yes, you may think that it would make you more money instead of giving it to um, habitat restoration 
it's it's really beneficial in the end or maybe it's an animal that they don't think is very important but when you find show them the economical value of it then maybe they change their perspective and and so uh, for me it's just genuine conversations and having it relate to whatever that person is feeling at the time no it's true and it's important and i think you're right listen and, and absorb what they're saying and don't go with an agenda and then say, okay, I get it. But let me tell you why I think it's important. And you have a good conversation. That, that's a great way to approach that. And, you know, being an educator like yourself, I think it's critical what you're doing. And, you know, not only the, the older generation, but this younger generation is so critical, right? So it's awesome what you're doing. No, I was going to say it all starts with the kids. It's amazing how many grandparents and kind of old school thinking uh, perspectives that I kind of shift based on getting their kids excited. Like we did a, a something with, uh, gosh, what was the animal? I want to say it was a native frog or something. And by getting the kids excited and having the kids want to do their party and raise money for the conservation of the toad, then all of a sudden the, the, parents want to get involved and the grandparents wanted to get involved. And, and so I thought that was really cool by allowing the kids to become the leaders, if you will. Yeah, no, no, it's, it's great. Yeah. And they they can turn around and, and talk to their parents or grandparents. So this is the big question. I always ask this every interview and, you know, it, it came up in a scientific meeting a couple years ago. Anybody that listens to podcast knows, you know, it was just scientists talking about morality. Do we have a moral obligation? So as a species humans, do we have a moral obligation to save these animals? Absolutely. Has anyone ever told you no? I've had a couple that teetered on it. Said, well, really? I don't know if we have morality. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's interesting. It's interesting to, to uh, take really uh, one was a scientist and, he was like, I don't know if we have a moral obligation, but we should, you know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I I do. I think that um, morally, y- you sh- have to take care of things that you know all obviously take care of you. Whether wow, that is a deep question, but yes, I, I I do, but <laughs> I do believe that morally, like I feel very obligated to protect things, and and when I go morally and ethically when I go and shop like I do consciously say like do I need this and if I do buy this what is it truly affecting and so um yes I believe that we have a moral obligation to yeah, each of us each it. of us has mm-hmm. one yeah that's amazing each of us that, that's okay there's the first person to say that because that's what you're saying like you go and, and you morally make a choice so then each, oh, I'm going to, oh, I'm going to ask that. <laughs> Write this down. Yeah, this is good for future questions. Like, is it, like is I'm, I like, I'm, I'm so intimidated. I know the imposter syndrome. I don't know if other mm-hmm. people feel it. I'm mm-hmm. sure you do, but mm-hmm. I'm a huge, um, huge, uh, in, I have a, what is that right word? I'm like a victim of it all the time. But mm-hmm. so anytime someone talks to me about like scientific evidence or, or morale or um, anything like that, mm-hmm. I always get so like hesitant to say anything because I'm like, oh, I don't, I don't know like the proper research terminology to right, say or right, I don't have any right. kind of articles to back up my thinking. But <laughs> my opinion <laughs> is that. Yeah. And you're, you do have a wealth of experience, so you can depend on that. So just a couple more questions. What's next for Ms. Mallory? So I would, I'm still truly pushing for a family friendly 
creepy crawly myth busting show. I would love that. Mm -hmm. But I'm also working on basically backyard adventure kits. Um, so those will be coming out in springtime to help parents who, like my own, didn't really know how to get the kids um, into nature because maybe they're a little mm -hmm. intimidated or they don't know how to make that introduction. So these these are what will help them do so. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That's a great idea. Oh, and so, so that's a great idea. Is that going to be on your website? Yeah, so you can come to my website, Miss Mallory Adventures. I have all the citizen science projects that you can help with um, along with different nonprofits that I currently work with that will um, that you can if you want something that you can support or be a part of you can join that I will also be doing um, kind of like social media consulting so if you are an organization that needs help sharing your message in a way that's fun and entertaining and also um, has a message without you know shoving it down someone's throat I also help with that as well so whether you want to become as a spectator or as someone who needs help sharing your message, it's all on the website. Oh, that's amazing. That's amazing. I, I'm just gonna be so fun to watch, watch as you uh, continue to grow and, and what you do because it, it leeches, maggots, hagfish, this giant leech. I swear to you, I will find a picture and I'll post it in our show notes. I've got to remember to do that. This Amazon giant. <laughs> leech oh my goodness oh mallory thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us it good luck keep doing what you're doing i'm going to post all your social media stuff your website on the show notes i, I really want our listeners to go and, and start following you watch your videos amazing work you're doing thank you so much for what you do it's making a difference wow thank you so much for saying that i really appreciate um those really kind words and thank you so much for having me Oh, amazing. And, and hopefully we can have you on in the future and listen more about your adventures. It's great stuff. I love that. Thank you. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off. U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts.